So over the last little while, I have been exploring wisdom. Uh, Wisdom where we can see things as they are. And in this seeing of things as they are, there is a releasing of tension, of dis-ease that we so often feel. Um, There's an unbinding of the heart that happens. And um, it brings us into an alignment with the way things are. And the Buddha was very practical in how we could nourish the seeds of wisdom, how we could really call forth wisdom in our lives. I've been speaking about wisdom uh, by way of the te- some of the teachings he gave through the Noble Eightfold Path, the training of the mind through uh, right view, right understanding, right intention, right thought, which is the wisdom aspect of the Noble Eightfold Path. Also, um, by paying attention to what we do, what we say, how we live in our lives, and through really training the mind through meditation. And in a couple of previous talks, I spoke about right view or understanding. This being giving direction to a sense of possibility that we have within ourselves. And that sense of possibility um, being strengthened through understanding of the law of karma, that that directs the mind towards that which is wholesome. When we really have an understanding of karma, we begin to see how what we do, what we say, has impact, um, that there are consequences. And out of the scene of that, the desire to act in skillful ways. And then we find that the um, strengthening of wisdom happens when we have our own understanding of the Four Noble Truths. This is what I spoke about last week, where when we see into suffering, we, we recognize the truth of suffering, we see into the cause of suffering, being that of craving, when we come to realize the end of suffering, that there is a release from this binding, this dis-ease. And the Buddha laid this out in the way of the Noble Eightfold Path. But when we investigate this in our own understanding, this is a way that wisdom uh, gives. We, We have a view of the mind that is clear, the mind that is noble, the mind that is upright. And so tonight, moving into the next aspect of the Noble Eightfold Path, that of being right intention or right intention or right thought. This comes about very naturally when we do have some understanding of the law of karma. 
It's like there's a direction given towards that which is wholesome. And right intention or right thought is that volitional act that will help us to facilitate moving in the direction of that which leads to the alleviation of suffering. The Buddha classified thoughts in two basic categories. And this came out of his own experience of sitting and looking. Or maybe he wasn't sitting, that's my interpretation. (laughs) That in his own mind, he looked at the types of thoughts that arose. And he saw that there's one category of thoughts, which were thoughts of desire, ill will, and harmfulness. And he saw that these thoughts led to harm, harm both to oneself and to others. He saw that these types of thoughts obstructed wisdom and led away from the uh, led away from nibbana. He saw another category of thoughts as being thoughts of renunciation, thoughts of goodwill, and thoughts of non-harming. He noticed that these thoughts were beneficial, that these thoughts were conducive to growth and wisdom, and that they were an aid to the realization of nibbana. And so he laid out right intention or right thought as being thoughts that are based on renunciation, goodwill, and harmlessness. There's one simple aspect that I see in this, that in any moment where there is an intention, there is a motivation, we can look and see, does this lead to wholesomeness? Does it lead to the alleviation of pain? Is it helpful? Is it turning the mind towards the awakened state? Or is it an intention or motivation that's going to cause harm, going to cause pain, going to bring about more suffering, that's going to lead to more confusion? whether it's to ourselves or to others. This gives a very simple framework to look at those intentions that arise in our minds. Our intentions, our thoughts, are forerunners to our actions, our speech. These intentions and thoughts have a lot of impact on our lives and the lives of people around us. And yet so often we don't pay attention. 
we don't have this degree of care in looking, examining what our motivation is, what our intention is. We act impulsively. We act out of the habituated mind. This aspect of the Eightfold Path, right intention, right thought, helps us to learn to direct our thoughts in a way that is helpful, reduces suffering. A couple of days ago I started preparing this talk and I was looking at some old notes. And um, there's one aspect of being a teacher that's helpful is, you know, you can look back and see what you might have thought about something before. And I saw this story that I had told in, you know, looking at that turning of the mind. And it was this example of there being ill will in the mind and turning the mind towards goodness instead. And it was, you know, can be very simple things in our lives. What I had seen was... um, I had been going through a period where I would wake up in the middle of the night and lay there. And there wouldn't be quite enough mindfulness to be really present with experience. And so it would start to happen over time that the thoughts would accelerate, the mind would get more agitated, and then, you know, sleep was impossible. And then at some point I made the discovery that if instead of just laying there and letting the mind spin out, if I turned the mind towards metta, towards loving kindness, and you know, at this, at, in the nighttime it was just doing metta for all beings, being very expansive with it, um, that what would happen was that sometimes the concentration would actually take me into sleep. But if that didn't happen, the mind found a very peaceful abiding. And it really didn't matter if I slept or not. And so two nights ago, I woke up and I couldn't sleep. And I you know, did like I had done in the past, just laid there. Um, and, and then suddenly at one point I remembered that just that day before I had read what I had done in the past. And you know, it reminded me. And it, I remembered it at the point where I'd been laying there for a while, starting to spin out, and then aversion started coming in. And you know, as soon as I saw the aversion, it's like, oh, you know, I just can't let this keep running. No, it was too, I know how painful that is to just lay there and let that build. So then it was like, okay, and then remembering, and it was turning the mind towards metta again. And it, it had exactly the same effect that it had in the past. You know, I didn't fall asleep, but the mind just went uh, into a wholesome state. And just being in that wholesome state, there was an ease, a peace. And it wasn't feeding that aversion, that ill will. It's really helpful in both the meditation practice we do sitting here on the cushion to what we do in our lives to be able to work with turning the mind away from that which isn't going to help us that which isn't going to help anybody. And, you know, we do it over and over again. 
that we fall prey to these habits that are based in unwholesome mind states. But we can learn to recognize when it is these types of thoughts that the Buddha spoke about that cause pain, cause suffering. You know, to see when the mind falls into wanting, uh, grasping, when it falls into ill will. We can pay attention when thoughts of cruelty arise. And if we're paying attention, there can be a moment where we can turn the mind consciously in a direction that's helpful. And this helps wisdom to come forth in our lives. So the first type of right thought, right intention, this is thoughts of renunciation. Renunciation being the capacity to let go, to relinquish, to abandon. We find it helpful in the realm of sense desire, sense pleasure, where we get caught up in going for life's momentary pleasures, caught up in trying to find happiness through experiences that, by their very nature, will change and cannot supply this deep form of happiness. In working with renunciation by way of relinquishment, letting go, abandoning, it takes us right into working with craving, the cause of suffering. We find that with renunciation, what we are really letting go of is our suffering. Of course we don't believe this if we don't understand the pain that comes from being continually propelled through life by wanting pleasant experience. If we still believe that that can bring us happiness, it will be very hard to abandon or let go. And so the Buddha talked about reflecting on the drawbacks of sensual pleasure. To see for ourselves how painful it is to be caught in this way. To see for ourselves how unsatisfactory it is to 
have this movement of mind that is continually wanting, you know, that wanting to set up our lives to get the most, the most pleasant experience. How these sense pleasures do not last, how there is a great deal of energy that is consumed by chasing after them, and how having the belief that we need this pleasant experience in order to be happy makes us really suffer when things are unpleasant. As we're practicing here, we can reflect, contemplate, know for ourselves the drawbacks of sensual pleasure. Could be after we've eaten a meal, and it was our favorite food, and we ate it quickly, hurriedly, wanting to, you know, have that pleasant hit moment after moment. Afterwards, sitting, our stomach hurts, we're in pain, there's sleepiness, drowsiness. It's a way we can experience the drawbacks of sensual pleasure. Or when we're sitting and we remember the sitting we had before, where the mind was calm, peaceful, was effortless. But it's not happening that way in this sitting. And we get caught in trying to fabricate it. We want it. And it's not happening. Sometimes we might be sitting and there's some imagined event that's going to bring us great pleasure. And we're happy just thinking about it. But the event happens. Maybe it's a wonderful lunch. Maybe it's an interview that's just going to give us what we need. And then it doesn't happen. Noticing the level of unsatisfactoriness. Noticing the moments where we get what we want. Seeing how long the happiness lasts. The Buddha also spoke about in coming to understand renunciation by reflecting on the rewards of renunciation. This is something that's also easy for us to do here on retreat. To know that just in coming here, there's a level of renunciation that we're living. That in coming here, we have let go of the outer world of distraction, uh, you know, the, the busyness of our lives. We're sitting in relative simplicity. And we can just feel the impact of that. Where we're not so pushed and pulled, life is simple. 
it has, and it has the support of uh, kind of a focused direction, you know, that, that we are practicing. Internally, we notice moments of relinquishment in moments of letting go, not hanging on, feeling the release, the coolness of mind. Noticing how much more energy is available when we're not chasing after desires. When renunciation is based in wisdom, there's a knowing that sense desire will never give us its promised fulfillment. And this provides us with the intention, the volition to renounce, to let go, to relinquish. Lama Yeshe, a Tibetan teacher, says, Renunciation is a wish to emerge from the repeated frustrations and disappointments of ordinary life. With renunciation, we learn to abandon that which is based in greed, hatred, and delusion. In a moment of renunciation, it's a moment of the deepest kindness to ourselves, not letting ourselves be fooled into believing that sense pleasure can bring us satisfaction. We find that renunciation helps us with ethical conduct in that we can renounce conduct that is harmful, hurtful, is not helpful. We find that renunciation supports concentration by eliminating distraction. We're not pushed and pulled by this realm of sense-desire. We find that renunciation helps to nourish the seed of wisdom. It's an integral part of being able to not take ownership of this body, this being, this mind, these experiences. In our practice, we can practice renunciation over and over again as experiences come and go and we don't try to hang on. We don't try to hang on to happiness. We don't try to hang on to peace. We don't try to hang on to anger, aversion. Whatever comes, no clinging. 
So the intention of renunciation, can we hold it as an intention in our lives, setting the direction of our lives, that we look at simplifying, relinquishing, letting go? Somehow in putting this talk together, I was really struck by the word intention because somehow there can be a lot of judgment around times when um, I might forget. I might be in pursuit of sense pleasure, not practicing renunciation. But one can always come back to this intention. Whatever one's actions may have been in the past, one can come back and plant this seed of intention. It's planting a seed of wisdom. So the second form of right intention being that of the intention of goodwill. The intention of goodwill takes us out of a self-referencing framework of living a view of life that places itself at the center and getting what I want, what I need, um, that holds this I as the center. But instead, when we practice goodwill, it's shifting the focus from I, I, I to being inclusive, to opening to the welfare of others, to opening to an abundance of heart that is generous, benevolent. The intention of goodwill is strengthened by metta, loving kindness the understanding of this quality of metta. Metta itself has uh, qualities of friendliness, tenderness, gentleness, a benevolence of heart, sometimes spoken of as being a universal love, a love that is free of attachment. It's a love that is free of the desire to possess. It's non-self-referencing. And when we live from a place of goodwill, it's non-self-referencing. And this incorporates a truth of the way things are, the interconnectedness of life. when we have an intention of goodwill, it's turning the mind away from this um, tendency we have of separation. From the tendency of separation, we often find ill will, aversion. When we turn towards goodwill, it's turning towards interconnectedness, 
this connection, not standing separate. There's a teaching that I really liked from Rumi. He said, the center clears, knowing comes. The body is not singular like a corpse, but singular like a grain of salt, still in the side of the mountain. When we look deeply into experience, when we realize anatta, there being no small separate self, we look into the truth of this interconnectedness. And metta is a cohesiveness in this interconnectedness. Our whole view of life changes when we do not stand apart from life, but stand deeply entwined, connected. And when we have the intention of goodwill, it's a way of turning the mind to care for all that is. This wanting all beings to be happy, all beings to prosper. I remember when I first started giving Dharma talks and there was a lot of fear about it. It was quite painful. And initially in, in the giving them, it was as if I was looking out at the enemy. Everyone was sitting, judging, you know, I don't know, they were out to get me in some way. And it was quite a painful experience. And then at some point, there was the recognition that all I was doing was offering what I had to offer. And it was stopping seeing the, seeing all of you, although it wasn't you, maybe it was some of you, <laughs> seeing them as enemy, as other, but seeing them as beings that I cared for, wanted to wish well for by just giving giving generously whatever I could. It really took me out of a really isolated, painful place into a sense of connection, a sense of me not sitting in a hall separate to all of you, and just being able to offer. And you know, so much of this goodwill is in that capacity of the heart to offer, to be generous to care. And this is what we turn our minds towards. And this is, this is what the wisdom of the mind does. You know, so it's not that we have to create it, but we forget it. We forget that this is the expression of wisdom, loving kindness, compassion. These are our divine abidings, our divine home. But we get caught in the anger, the aversion, the ill will. And, you know, so it becomes a simple task of remembering in those moments when some form of that aversion, separation arises, that we can 
turn the mind. We can re-aim the mind towards remembrance of this goodwill. I'd like to share a story that comes from Seira Uendika. He wrote a book on loving kindness. He's um, one of the Seiras that I've met in my journeys to Burma. He, w- he is telling a story about another Seira named Kanta Seira. And he described him as having a very good and very generous nature. The minute he is given something in one place, he immediately offers it in another place. Wherever he has to go, whenever he has to go somewhere, he fills his shoulder bag with candies. And when he arrives at his destination, he hands out the candies to everybody. All of the people who meet him and all of the children who see him gather around him because he is loved and respected by everybody. There is nobody who does not know him in the area that he lives. And Sayada is very happy when he can give and offer things. Sayada Uendika went on to encourage people to hand out metta candies, hand out as many as possible. And then he goes on to say, wouldn't it be wonderful if all living beings practiced metta, wishing for happiness and the peace of all sentient beings? And this is how we can live our lives, where we go through life wishing well for all beings, whoever we meet, whatever we meet, wishing well for ourselves. This is the direction the Buddha was saying was helpful to turn our mind towards. Making it an active practice in our lives. No, we can strengthen it through spending time doing metta, loving kindness practice, where you know we consciously move through offering metta, loving kindness to ourselves. You know, moving on to someone whom it's really easy to wish well for, and then just gradually extending that field of loving kindness till it comes to the point where it can be for all beings without distinction, without exclusion. In sitting here, turning our minds towards this loving-kindness, this tenderness, this gentleness, both in how we do the practice and the acceptance, the kindness of how we practice, because often that's where we hold so much judgment that we aren't good enough, not doing it right. It's a place for loving kindness. It's a place for goodwill. practicing loving-kindness in bringing the, the kindness to how we meet experience. Letting 
loving kindness be the container in which we practice. that we don't practice in a harsh way, harmful way. But we come back to a recognition in ourselves of the wish to be happy, the basis of friendliness, really learning to be a friend to ourselves through our practice. Generosity, giving, can be a training, a support in this um, intention of goodwill. Looking at how we can be practice generosity in our lives, how we can actively express our goodwill. It helps to open the heart in a moment of generosity there's a potential you know if we're simply giving there's an openness of heart and this openness of heart has the capacity to touch another to open their hearts When we have moments of ill will, anger, aversion, seeing if we can both recognize the pain that is present if we feed these mind states, and to actually see if there is the potential to simply turn the mind towards loving kindness goodwill. We find with this um, goodwill that there's a real softening of the heart. And this doesn't mean that we deny, suppress, cover over anger or resentment. It means that we meet it with kindness and care. That we bring wise attention. It's really helpful to recognize the power of just shifting the the attention in these moments. This morning I spoke about, in the, in the sitting, I was talking about how when there is pain, that if you just try to be with the painful sensations and aversion is present, one, one will actually find, if one isn't acknowledging the aversion, that the pain strengthens, that there's more contraction, more tightness. And so it is with anger. If we're angry with somebody, 
uh, somebody's done something to irritate us. We're, you know, in some way pissed off with someone. And if we just keep looking at that person from the perspective of the anger and what they've done, that's going to fuel the anger. But if in a moment we can shift our attention to, could be shifting it to seeing the goodness within that person, that is said to be the cause of the arising of metta, seeing the goodness, or shifting the attention to just the fact that this is another human being that wants to be happy. It changes our perspective. It helps the mind to make that shift to a place that is wholesome, helpful. Metta is described as the welling up of love that a mother cow has on first seeing her newborn calf. Now, it's a spontaneous movement of the heart towards connection, towards caring. So the second form of right thought, right intention, the intention of goodwill. The third form of right thought, right intention, being the intention of non-harming. Non-harming is based upon compassion, actions rooted in non-harming, a responsiveness to suffering. Compassion is that quivering or trembling of the heart when it sees suffering and is pulled into action. I was reflecting on a moment where I experienced compassion for another. And what I remembered was one time a number of years ago when I was on retreat, And I was in a place of a lot of anger and aversion. And I went into an interview. My interview was with Joseph. I went in and I blamed him for all of what I was experiencing. And I was stunned with his response. He just looked at me and he said, It's okay. You can put it all here. my heart just was like, whoa, in that moment. You know, I just felt his compassion, his care, that, you know, he could, he could let me be in this state of suffering. He could let me dump it on him. And he just came back with tenderness. The intention of compassion is said to be the intention on which all of the bodhisattvas or aspiring Buddhas have initiated their path of awakening. That it's based on this responsiveness of the heart 
to want to alleviate suffering for the benefit of all beings. That's a powerful intention that carries one through all of the trials and tribulations of awakening, all of the ways that we get caught. But we have this intention within us to want to alleviate suffering, to want to act in ways that don't create harm. If we reflect on how it is that we came to practice, it probably is based in compassion. That we come to practice because we care. You know, whether we just found that we, there was so much suffering in our own lives, whether we found we were acting unskillfully in life, and we didn't want to continue that. We wanted to find a way to relate wisely to life. We wanted a way find, to find a way to be helpful in life. And then we found that the practice helped us to do that. But it, the initial motivation can come out of this tre- trembling or quivering of the heart. Compassion allows us to be touched by life, to be touched by the pain of life, the suffering, and not be broken by it. It helps us to be engaged with life so that through our practice we don't discover a wisdom that is uninvolved, disengaged. But the compassion is the responsiveness. Wisdom and compassion are deeply linked. That we need wisdom in order to see the nature of things. And we need compassion to stay connected, engaged, touched, be able to alleviate the suffering. We will often find that compassion, when we experience it, there can be a sadness because we're touching into suffering. Compassion isn't distancing itself from suffering. It's the touching into suffering. But we find this sadness has a sweetness to it because there's the sweetness of wisdom the sweetness of knowing the truth of the way things are and knowing that there's still pain brings the sadness. I think there's um, a poem from the the great Zen master Ryokan that expresses something of this. This is from This Floating World. When I think about the misery of those in this world, their sadness becomes mine, where we touch this pain, 
Oh, that my monk's robe were wide enough to gather up all of the suffering people in this floating world. Now, when, when we're in a compassionate place and there's pain, we just want to draw someone close. We want to hold them tenderly. Compassion is a verb. It's active. It cares. It's that movement of the heart, that trembling, that quivering, that's fearless. It allows us to become bigger than ourselves. Uh, this one story, probably some of you have heard it before, but you know, it's these simple moments in life where we are touched by compassion that to me speak of its strengths. One time, uh, Gaston Pond, maybe many of you know about the pond that's on the loop. It was in the middle of winter, and there was ice on the pond. And I was with a couple of other friends. One friend was from Australia. She'd never walked on ice and was really uncomfortable. And we decided to walk across the ice. I mean, it's quite a um, magical experience in itself. And, you know, sometimes you can see through the ice. Sometimes the ice will just crackle. And, you know, sometimes there'll be a big whoosh. Um, it's, it's an experience. And so, you know, we're walking across this ice, and my friend who was afraid was in the middle. And, you know, I'd walked across Gaston Pond many times. And so, you know, I was feeling quite confident, comfortable. And another friend who grew up in New England, you know, has walked on ice many times on the other side. So we're walking across the ice, and my friend in the middle kind of trembling, shaking. And when we got to the edge, I suddenly fell through. What was amazing was in that moment, it was my friend who is terrified of ice. She just lurched for, you know, she threw her body forward to get me. You know, it, she wasn't stopped by fear. She had that courageousness. She saw something happening where she could be of service. And, you know, she just reached out to catch me. Fortunately, it wasn't that deep where I fell in. <laughs> the problem was I was close to home, too, <laughs> so it wasn't a problem. But there is these moments in life where we become bigger than ourselves. That movement of the heart. So the Buddha talked about turning the mind in this direction. turning the mind towards non-harming. This is the direction that can free the heart, unbind. This is what will help us find wisdom, the innate wisdom. We need compassion in our practice. We need compassion for ourselves as we over and over again hit the habits that we have that are painful. As we do seemingly stupid things, we need to have compassion for ourselves. 
Compassion is really a way of bearing witness, just like the Buddha did. Bearing witness to the deepest pain within and being motivated to alleviate that pain. So the three kinds of right intention, intention of renunciation, intention of goodwill, and intention of harmlessness. These counteract the three types of wrong intention, intentions of desire, intention of ill will, and intention of harmfulness. Looking to support the understanding of how important this shift in the mind is. Looking to how we can support the strengthening of the wholesome intentions. With renunciation, reflecting on the pitfalls of sensual desire and the reward of renunciation to support the intention of goodwill we can consciously cultivate metta loving kindness wishing for all beings to be happy to support the intention of harmlessness reflecting on compassion turning our minds towards compassion maybe through consciously doing compassion practice where we wish that ourselves, again, it can be done through going through the different categories of beings, but wishing that all beings may be free from suffering. We can really work with right intention moment by moment in our lives, paying attention to the motivation, intention that we're bringing to what we do and what we say. So that what we do and what we say takes us in the direction of awakening. It's the act of volition to set us in motion on the journey of awakening. So let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.